Hello and welcome to Malanga Talk podcast. My name is Jerry Malanga and I'm joined with our fellow Dr. Josh Martin and we're here to give another educational talk for our future physicians. I hope you enjoy it. So what is the what are the other terms that are used for stress fracture? Perhaps more accurate descriptive you talk about like bone marrow edema. Well, bone marrow edema is something you're going to see on an imaging study. There's increased load on the bone or repetitive increased load. Okay, how about insufficiency fracture? Okay. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. And obviously, um, the tissue we're talking about is bone, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a bone thing. So then if you're going to talk about these things, then you're going to have to understand bone, bone metabolism, uh, bone loading, uh, things like that. So insufficiency of bone, um, or insufficiency fracture would imply that there's something abnormal of the bone, which is not always the case with a stress fracture. So it may not be. So, um, and so what kind of problems would you have with the bone that would lead to, uh, like insufficiency or stress? Right. I mean, I think that's the big one, right? And often I'll think about the forces that the bone's requiring to do are in excess of what the bone is capable of. Excellent. So, so it's either a problem of bone or a problem of force mm -hmm. or overload. So what you'll see clinically when you develop a quote-unquote stress fracture, because and we're saying the bone was stressed and that's what happens, um, is that it's either normal loads on abnormal bone or excessive loads on relatively normal bone, right? Mm -hmm. So bone is an interesting structure because it, it reacts to the forces that are applied to it. And when forces are applied to bone, what happens to it? Yeah. yeah, and what kind, there's a law that's associated with the loading of bone and then the reactive laying down of bone. You ever hear Wolf's, Wolf's Law? law. Okay. Right, Wolf's yeah. Law. Okay. I think Wolf's Law is important to be aware of, right? So if you see young or any kind of athlete um, that that do certain activities over and over again and they do it without overloading the bony structure too much, what you end up seeing is hypertrophy of bone. And so if you look at, let's say, a little league shoulder or an arm, the bony structures are pretty thick. The cortical bone is pretty thick and hypertrophied. And, and, and if you overload a young athlete, the, the weakest link uh, of the structures is the physis, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's what ends up, you know, if you're overloading it too much and the forces are applied, shearing forces especially, you can then get overload of the physis and then you have physal injuries as well. And then you can get alterations of the positioning, like you can get increased retroversion of the, the, the head and then you can get abnormalities be related to that because then you can have super excessive external rotation, which you often see in a throwing athlete, and then limitation in internal rotation. And some of that is accommodative and expected, and other of that is sort of maladaptive, if you will, and not something you really want. And 
and can then get to other problems, right? Because if you have these abnormal motion and shear forces across the glenohumeral joint, then you can get shearing at the labrum, you can get superior head migration, you can get impingement onto the biceps tendon, you can get impingement into the cuff, and then you can get cuff changes as well. And, and, and in the past, certain adaptive changes from throwers were felt to be normal and accepted. So you'd say, yeah, the thrower gets, you know, 140, 160 degrees of external rotation, and then it's okay if they only have 20 or 30 degrees of internal rotation because their entire arc of motion is pretty similar. But people now have understood, you know, maybe for a decade or more, that loss of internal rotation or GERD, especially with side-to-side differences, leads to a great number of injuries and is actually a preventable thing. And if you use simple measures preventatively, you can decrease the injury rate, right? Simple stretches like sleeper stretches and, and proper stretches of the posterior capsule. And there was a study done with the trainers from the Philadelphia Phillies that showed a great decrease in the, the incidence of shoulder injuries so uh, getting back to stress fractures, so we have these different types of stress fractures. We have stress fractures in different age groups, right? So whenever we talk about sports, you kind of have to also divide it into the various sports. There's the adolescent athlete, the young athlete, and then the older athlete, right? So, and then what are the most common areas that you get stress fractures? So let's talk about the adolescent and young athlete. What are the most common areas of stress fractures in that group? And then we could talk about what sports as well, right? So if we're talking about sports medicine, to be aware of athlete, the sport, the sport type, the age group, things like that. So, okay. So what are the most common areas of stress fractures in the younger athlete? Tibia. Tibia, yeah. I'd say that is true. And what else is pretty big? The elbow. Um... Yeah, if you want to consider various bony overload things. I guess the foot. Okay, well, the navicular bone bone. in particular. Okay, I would say that's a little bit lower, but definitely something to be aware of. Uh, Like femur? Yeah, what part of the femur? Like traction compression of the neck. So, right. So the hip or the the femur, right? Proximal femur. Um, And what sports? Uh, do you see, see runners cross country? Uh, yep. So you say runners and cross country is big. Okay. What other? Do they have like jumping sports? So maybe like um, well, similar sport that does a lot of running. Yeah. Soccer. Soccer. Yeah, I'd say you know, soccer. You need to be aware of that. Soccer, and then it's plus minus in other sports. You know, uh, field hockey, football. The other one that we didn't list uh, is the lumbar spine, right? Or the spondy, right? Yes. Which could be an entire other topic if you separate it out into spine problems in, in athletes. But at, at the end of the day, it is a stress fracture of the spine, right? So mm-hmm. you want to think about it. All right. So we have our runners that do cross country. They start developing pain. Generally in the tibia, where is that pain located? So that should be the uh, uh, distal medial uh, tibia. Well, it's sort of mid-tibia medially. I mean, so it's more on the medial side, right? Uh, It's more like 
proximal one-third area. Okay. okay. Um, and so what is the history that's associated with it? So, uh, increase in volume of uh, running or activity. Get abrupt increase, as yeah. you were saying. When I did cross-country, um, our coach had a rule of try not to increase by more than 10% of your mileage per week. And Josh, you ran, so you, you know this really well. So holding back people a little bit, both the coaches and the athletes, is a really hard thing to do. But So when it doesn't happen, there's an overload of forces, and then a certain number of folks develop chin splints that end up being uh, what we would call a stress fracture. So when... So when they finally present, what do we do with differential diagnosis to try to sift it out? Uh, is this a muscle overload or is this more bony shin splint? Both on your exam, perhaps, and then other testing. So I think that if you're looking at things like compartment issues or muscular in nature, they will uh, reduce with rest. Okay. And then um, specifically... Shins plus reducer rest as well, right? Yeah, but I also believe that um, the activity level uh, for shin splints, if you if they progress over time, the less activity you do, they still bother you. Correct. So then they'll start crossing a threshold where they even have pain when they walk, right? Exactly. So a simple loading of walking versus a compartment syndrome, which is going to be generally related to you exercising and, and filling the compartment with blood and fluid, right? All right. Um, and then anything on examination that you, you kind of would look for, uh, both in terms of making a diagnosis and maybe helping you with a treatment? Some things I might consider would be if they do have significant pain, even with like weight bearing through that one leg, or if there's significant tenderness specifically over bone um, in areas that I find concerning over that medial yep. uh, tibia. Okay. Um, and then there are other methods of trying to stimulate bone, right? Either percussion with a reflex hammer. Hopping or jumping. Yep. So you could do a hop test, right, and see what that does, um, which shouldn't bother somebody with a compartment syndrome, should minimally bother somebody with a muscle irritation kind of thing. And then you could also do tuning for it. Right. So with a true fracture, a tuning fork will cause a vibration along the periosteum, which would be painful. Maybe that's old, outdated. Um, and I couldn't tell you the sensitivity and specificity of that, but it's actually, you know, worth doing. The other thing is that in addition to the force and or the problem with underlying bone, it's the biomechanics of the limb that might cause a focused increase in force in that area. So looking at the leg alignment, and in particular looking for either supinated or pronated type foot, right, and seeing how that might influence. In general, I would say it's the more pronated foot that will overload the medial compartment um, and will lead to that kind of a stress reaction, if you will, or a stress fracture. So then you sit with somebody and you're not sure what they have. What would you do? You can go towards the imaging route. Okay. So what yeah. would you pick as an imaging? As a screen, a lot of people do x-rays, but x-rays may not show with an MRI what would probably would show. Sure. So, um, you know, it's not going to give you the final answer. Usually if your clinical symptoms are leaning towards a, a stress fracture. Um, but ultimately, I think we would want to get an MRI to see if there's any stress edema, bony edema in the, in the cell. Yeah. In the cell. What do you think? 
Josh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think given the availability of that technology and with the hopefully the, ink, the decrease in the cost of that technology, I mean, it's still some higher cost than it ought to be. I think that's probably the way to go. Historically, uh, we would get an X-ray. I'm not sure of the value of X-ray other than it's sort of a baseline test. You could see ominous things, right? If this is a tumor that's there, you might see that uh, visibly. And then what's the classic concerning thing that you would see? The dreaded black line. Okay, yeah. so yeah, so good to know. Yeah. Historically, the dreaded black line. And what is the dreaded black line? It looks just like a horizontal cut through the bone, which may indicate that there's already been significant fracture into the bone already, which is rather advanced. And where is that normally found? Is it lateral tibia? No, it's it's pro, it's just more pro, proximal okay. medial tibia than maybe a lot of shin splints, which are a little bit maybe lower than that. Mm-hmm. But I would say your MRI would show you that plus a whole lot more. That MRI is probably the imaging study to get. The alternative to that is just treat it as if it is a stress fracture, right? And then do all the things that you would do as if somebody had a stress fracture, right? You get an x-ray, you prove that there's not a dreaded black line, because if there's a dreaded black line, then what are you supposed to do? What is the... Uh, it would be almost like referral for sort of like surgical pinning. Yeah, the, yeah they would, you would need to consider whether something surgically needs to be done. And that dreaded black line occurs because of what? What is the pathophysiologic reasoning for that because it's a watershed hypovascular area right that's why you get it and that's why you're concerned that it may not just heal with you just resting it and that something else might need to get done um so yeah so you could treat you could say to the the athlete to the parents to me we should get an x-ray make sure there's nothing bad on an x-ray let me ask you guys this. Um, how about ultrasound? People have talked about ultrasound for this. Do you guys know of any awareness of ultrasound and what it might yield? So you may be able to detect some periosteal elevation. I mean, I think it'd be really good at looking for it. I think if you're going to use it, but um, uh, it could be used as a screening tool for really severe cases, or I guess some uh, cases like way down the line um, and it's time course. Yeah, I would agree that... It- it, it in certain cases can be revealing, but I wouldn't want to use. I wouldn't hang, want to hang my hat on that, right? So I uh, would want to get the proper imaging, or say this is likely a stress fracture, and let's treat it like that. So let's suppose your MRI comes back, it proves it's a stress fracture, or you, you say I'm just going to treat this like a stress fracture. Then what is the plan of action? What is the treatment? So you definitely want them to abstain from a lot of those um, repetitive loading activities. Okay. So I would um, discontinue them from sport, especially if it was cross-country or soccer at that time. Okay, so they're going to have to stop doing that because that's proven to cause a problem. Mm-hmm. Seems pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. What else? I mean, you could discuss um, even like supplementation of vitamin D calcium, if that's something that would be beneficial Okay, uh, I think that's very thoughtful and reasonable, although I would want to know what their vitamin D level is, right? And so they've done some interesting work in studying college female cross-country runners to see what happens. 
So usually these fresh fractures actually don't happen until end of October or November, right? And they've looked at what happens to vitamin D levels, and vitamin D levels plummet after the summer and kids get back and start running. And you, you see injury rates going up, you see people getting sick all the time, and people just say, ah, because of the cold weather, because of running, but there's going to be a definite tie-in with vitamin D level. And so um, I would rather kind of get a picture of where their vitamin D level is and then talk about vitamin D supplementation. So what would be reasonable vitamin D supplementation? Is it like two to 4,000 units uh, daily? Maybe okay. Maybe on the higher end of that? Yeah. I mean, there are people who have raised concerns. Even the Institute of Medicine has raised concerns about developing hypervitamin D uh, levels, right? It's extremely hard to do that, quite frankly. Um, and so they have said there's no reason why anyone in America should be on greater than 2,000 IUs of vitamin D per day. Um, and I just think it's just a lack of understanding of vitamin D and, and the levels. The other thing that you need to be aware of is that if you get your lab value, the vitamin D levels normal levels are set at such a low level. So most labs, the level is like 32 to 35 microgram per deciliter. And so if you're over 35, it'll say you're normal. That is not normal by the, by the expertise of most experts in vitamin D and, and bone physiology. Most would say 55 to 60 would be a good level. And some people would say even higher levels up to 70 or 80. Uh, anything under 100 is totally safe. Once you get to 100 and beyond, you're probably heading toward potential problems with it, and that would be a small subset of the population that would get to that point. Most people, it's hard to get their vitamin D levels up. So, And when you take vitamin D, it's the absorption is increased when you eat something fatty, so having them eat it with some milk or some cheese. Um, and there's some work that combining it with a cofactor of K2 is an important cofactor that helps with vitamin D implementation um, and absorption. So vitamin D3, not D2, uh, with K2 um, could be a useful thing. And then, you know, looking at the potential issues regarding their running style, right? So there, there perhaps are some ways of minimizing the force to the tibia. Um, by various running styles, and running styles now have varied over time. Josh, you know this. I mean, some people used to have like a more forward posture, um, a, a shorter, choppier step versus a longer step, um, and obviously working on all the other muscle groups to absorb force are going to be very important. And if, and if they do have significant pronation, um, then giving them some kind of arch support would seem to be reasonable. It's also important if they are serious about the sport to maintain their cardiovascular fitness. So if you wipe away their ability uh, to run, then you need to substitute with a sport, with an activity that gets their heart rates up at the same level for the same duration because you don't want them, their bone to be fine and then their cardiovascular fitness levels to be in the tank, right? So you're going to do some cross-training fitness things, swimming, swimming. Um, and, and you, then you can use the pool even to develop a progressive weight-bearing program if they're really got severe um, stress fracture, right? And you could sequentially have them doing vest pool running and then running. Um, and, and now with Alter-G, 
you can do incredible things with an Alter-G, right? So you can offload that bone and have them run as if they're not weight-bearing. So the Alter-G would actually perhaps now at this time serve as the best alternative to full weight-bearing running with the same motion pattern that you, you have. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's even worth doing a full functional movement screen because there may be issues higher up in the chain that are resulting in victimization of the medial tibia uh, that's being overloaded. So looking at everything and balancing everything out would be a useful thing to do as well. Then, you know, in terms of return to sport, I mean, you have to understand that, you know, bone in a young athlete, generally a fracture will heal in four to six weeks. So a stress fracture, which is not a complete fracture, should heal in a bit shorter time frame. But in terms of gradual return to sport, they're going to need about three to four weeks. And it's just going to be based upon their ability to tolerate progressive loading. So if they walked around and said, oh, I hurt when I walked around, then you have to offload them even when they're walking around. Mm -hmm. If they walk around without pain, then you can say, all right, you can walk, but you can't run, right? And then if they walk around and they're having pain and you, you observe a limp, then it's probably worth putting them on crutches until they can walk without pain, without a limp. And then you progressively load from there based on your knowledge of healing and the physiology. But if you want to say, okay, they have you know, past two to three weeks of relative rest. They have no pain. They've, we've looked at all the biomechanical things. We've done some physical therapy things. Um, you know, there are some modality things that sometimes can help stimulate bone as well. And, and if you, on your MRI, this is a clear stress fracture, then you can consider some of those bone stimulator type things. Uh, the bone stimulators can range from an ultrasound based to electrical stimulation type things. Um, there's been some recent interesting work on st stress fractures, I guess refractory stress fractures it should be, using shockwave therapy, mm. right? Uh, which has been really super interesting, he, uh, especially there's been some interesting work on shockwave therapy for, uh, you know, recalcitrant navicular um, stress fractures of the foot. Uh, again, in the area where the blood supply is not so great. And then when you feel like they're able to start running, then my rule of thumb is you take them back at half of the duration and half the intensity of what they did before. So now that's a little tricky, right? They say, oh, I used to do 630 miles, right? And I did 10 miles, right? So you say, all right, you're going to have to slow down a lot and you're going to do five miles, right? Not 10 miles, right? Mm -hmm. So... And then you ramp up their intensity levels first, and then you can, and then I, my rule of thumb is 10% per week. So 10% a week, and then, so that gets them to full in about three to four weeks, right? I mean, you can kind of push that a little bit depending on who they are and where this, they are in the season and if they're doing really well, but for your normal athlete. So the whole process then will take six to eight weeks to get you through, probably more like the eight-week time frame, all right? I want to thank you for joining us on this podcast and I appreciate your time. I hope this was informative and will benefit you and your medical education. Hope you all have a great day.